In the world of meteorology, the letters SPC carry a lot of weight from severe weather to flooding and fire. The Storm Prediction Center, or SPC, covers almost everything under the sun. Today's guest has spent the past several years on staff at the SPC as a mesoscale assistant fire weather forecaster. He has brought his years of forecasting to Norman, Oklahoma, and today he joins us on Weather Geeks. Welcome to the show, Evan Bentley. Thank you for having me, Jen. Evan, so good to have you. And for everyone joining us, I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel. And we're excited for this uh, this new year of Weather Geeks. We have both the audio version, which you're probably listening to, or folks can watch us as well on our streaming channel. So that's an exciting development. And Evan, glad you are a part of this. We've been wanting to get you on the show for a while. So uh, we'll start with the very first question we ask everyone on Weather Geeks, which is, how did you become a weather geek? So I know that this is a story that you hear a lot in the weather community is knowing from a very young age, you wanted to be a meteorologist, right? And that was no different with me. Um, it was actually from a very young age. I couldn't even tell you when it started. Um, I know it was pretty neat a couple of years ago when my mom was, of course, clearing everything out of the house. You know, she's like, you know, you're in your 30s now. You need to get all this stuff out of here. One of the things she found was her journal when she was a child and in her journal, it was probably when I was two and a half or three, she wrote, this kid is always just looking up at the clouds. And so it really is just fitting that it started from even the time I was a toddler. I was always fascinated by the skies and uh, sure enough, turned it into a career. That's amazing. Did you keep the journal? I did. Yep. It's, it's sitting in a keepsake uh, yeah. in my attic because that's really special. Yeah, It's so special. You almost need to like frame that. And I mean, that's that's incredible that at that age and then it, it is a common story. So many people when they're young, so many meteorologists when they're young, either had a fear of weather or they you know, had an experience like you did. Yours is similar to mine, which is just fascinated by the weather. You weren't afraid of it, right? You just were interested in it. No. And in fact, um, when I was maybe 10 or 11, um, my mom knew I loved the weather so much. I actually had a cloud mural on my wall with literally alto stratus, alto Q, cumulonimbus and a tornado above my bed. So I certainly wasn't scared of the weather if I was going to bed with a tornado <laughs> right, right above my uh, headboard every night. And maybe that uh, you sort of foresaw the future of you working at the Storm Prediction Center. Um, that's something. I want to go through your background a little bit, Evan. Um, right now, you are the Mesoscale Assistant Fire Weather Forecast at NOAA's Storm Prediction Center there in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, before that, you've worked as a forecaster at the National Weather Service in Oregon. And uh, you went to Valparaiso University with your BS Meteorology with a minor in Geography and Mathematics. Um, so I actually want to talk about your background because you've been in Indiana, in Oregon. I don't know where you were born, what part of the country. You have to share that as well. Because how do you feel that forecasting and being in different parts of the country has sort of shaped your your background as a, as a meteorologist, a forecaster, and sort of led you to the Storm Prediction Center today in Norman. Yeah, so I actually grew up in Ohio, um, and so it wasn't too far of a jog to go over to Indiana uh, to school at Valparaiso, where I had a fantastic experience and started my career uh, with the National Weather Service there in Indiana. I was at the Northern Indiana office there after being a skip in Indianapolis. Uh, skip is a program for, for students that at the time I was fortunate enough to get in and get my foot in the door in the weather service and worked at uh, Chicago and in Indianapolis office before settling in northern Indiana. So 
spent four or five years there seeing all types of severe weather patterns. And I was always frustrated there because we always got day two of the severe weather events. We had clouds to deal with. We never had quite enough instability. You're always on the margins of severe weather. Um, it was a really great place to learn because it was very challenging. Uh, but I was always jealous of the environments in the plains. Um, and, you know, my mom had told my wife, she was like, you know, eventually, you know, he's going to move you out to Tornado Alley. And she's like, I don't know. We'll see. And so then I moved her out to Portland, Oregon. She's like, oh, see, we got nothing to worry about. So, you know, I took a job out there and that was fantastic. Um, I, you know, loved living out there and the weather was so fascinating. You, know, you don't really think about it out there, but you've got these you know, big sub 960 surface lows off the coast, 100 mile per hour winds on the coast. You've got the easterly winds of the gorge over 100 miles per hour with ice storms and snow like they just had here in the last couple of weeks. Um, and really, I learned so much about forecasting the weather out there. Little did I know that it was um, more of a networking connection through the uh, meteorologist in charge out there, uh, David Bright. He actually had an experience at the SPC. And so since he knew that I really wanted to work here, he kind of put in a good word for me, got me in at a couple of the spring experiments. And, um, you know, that, that kind of helped familiarize me with the staff here and made me realize it's really what I wanted to do. And so I was fortunate enough after a couple of years to get out here to Norman. And sure enough, I didn't end up moving my wife to, uh, to Tornado Alley. Well, that's a great career path. But um, I think I remember reading that you actually did have a tornado when you were in Oregon. Yeah, so that's right. So it did end up following me out there. So there was a EF2 tornado that hit Manzanita, um, Oregon back on October, I believe it was October 14th in 2016. And, uh, and that was quite quite the surreal experience because it's not really what you expect when you're out there in Oregon. For you or for the people of Oregon either, because they don't happen very often out there. So um, yes, you uh, so you got the weather that you wish for, I guess, so to speak. Um, but no, so seriously, now you're at, at SPC. And look at the Weather Channel, we are so grateful for all the work that you do. I know meteorologists everywhere are grateful for the the solid work that you guys do at the Storm Prediction Center. Your forecast every day um, and night and just sort of sets the tone for uh, the communication, which of course is key to making sure people stay safe when it comes to severe weather. Um, so let's jump into that and talk about what you do at the Storm Prediction Center. So your title is Mesoscale Assistant Fire Weather Forecaster. What does that mean? What What does a day at work look like for you? Yeah, so um, on that desk, most of the time on the severe side, we are handling the thunderstorm outlooks that go out in the morning. Um, so you, everyone sees the severe weather outlook, whether or not we've got marginal, slight, enhanced, moderate, or high risk out. Uh, but we're kind of doing the thunder line. But while we're doing that, we're also looking at a severe threat because that is one of the great things here at the Storm Prediction Center. It's a group uh, environment. We are all kind of working together to come up with a forecast. So even a lead forecaster with 30 years of experience is leaning on everybody in the room to kind of help formulate that forecast. So my official duty is the thunder line when I'm putting that together. But really, we're all looking at the severe side and offering our input. And then for the rest of the shift, it's spent um, looking at areas where there might need mesoscale discussions written, whether that's winter uh, this time of year or in the, the spring season, um, or looking into the uh, uh, severe weather mesoscale discussions that we're well known for. And really our key is just make sure we're ahead of it so that the lead forecaster, when they're ready to issue a watch, we already have kind of the sequence from an outlook to a mesoscale discussion and then preparing for a watch. Um, in, in a perfect world, it goes uh, really smoothly like that the, the whole way down every single time. Interesting. So you sort of when you when you come in and, you know, you brief yourself in and sort of look at the day ahead, you kind of already know that you're going to be issuing mesoscale discussions, watches, et cetera. Um, and versus like us on the outside listening in, as soon as one gets issued, you know, there, there's a lot of excitement around like, wow, things are things are really happening. But you probably knew hours before that that was going to come out, you know, in, in two hours um, because that's what you do. You're you know looking at that kind of thing. Uh, what about the fire weather part of it? Yeah, so um, 
part of our about 30 or so percent um, of our duties here on the uh, business scale assistant desk is working fire weather. So we're doing fire weather outlooks um, and uh, those were doing day one, day two, and then day three through eight uh, fire weather outlooks. And so that's kind of a different shift from the severe weather side. Um, there's a lot that goes on as far as trying to figure out what how dry fuels are at the ground. Because the thing is, the it's not just the weather. Because we've got the weather, but if you don't have anything dry to burn, it doesn't really matter how dry or windy it is. And so that's a you know a big t- uh, challenge that we have is coordinating with local forecast offices, local forest service. Uh, people and basically the boots on the ground who really can tell us, you know, what, what does it look like there? And so we try to get an idea for the fuels and then it's looking for the areas where we've got the most interesting uh, fire weather concerns um, and really making sure that we can help, you know, communicate that to all of our partners. Um, and really the nice thing with us is that we're a national center, so we can aggregate everything together. It's really nice for helping, um, you know, make national scale outlooks for FEMA and um, our, our large scale partners that um, really are looking for more of a broader look, outlook than you might get from a local forecast office. You know, I can imagine back when the Storm Prediction Center kind of first came to be after it was the National Severe Storms Lab, right? Was it NSSL or I, I forget the acronyms. Um, but but in general, I feel like over the past years and decades, it's become much more of not just the National Center to aggregate all the the weather, the National Weather Service offices and sort of bring them together. But, it, you know, media, ev- the public, everyone uses your products. Was it always intended that way or just kind of did it evolve that way for the public and the media to really use your products in, in the way that they do today? Yeah, you're exactly right. That's kind of how it's evolved. It kind of started out more internal um, communication and coordination, and now it's kind of expanded to partners across from media all the way yeah, uh, to the public, which, you know, as, as people know, has given us some communications challenges because, you know, we've been kind of talking just to other scientists and there's more of a push to kind of talk more um, in a role that's more understandable by everybody because we've got a lot of eyes on our products now, whether we like it or not. And so, so we really have to have to adapt. And really, I think it's a great thing. Uh, we can kind of lead the message from the top um, from what the severe weather is going to look like for the day to have just a consistent flow of information from the National Center at the SPC down to the local forecast office, uh, then into the broadcast media and even down to the local emergency manager. Hopefully, it's a consistent message that's coming down all the way across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, well, look, as I can tell you, as a user of all these products here, I appreciate that like the level of geekiness that is in them is phenomenal. And I learn something every time. And you'll you'll see us sometimes on social media sharing little snippets of the forecast or the uh, the discussion for the day. And we do the same thing out of area forecast discussions from the local offices too. Like when when there's a geeky moment, we love it and we love to share it too because it's it's a teaching moment really for all of us. Um, so I do hope that never goes away in terms of uh, I know that you want the. Uh, the products to be accessible to the masses, but you got to keep them hardcore geek because that's what we love here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and that's never going to change. You know, that that's really kind of the core of, of what we do is really digging really deep into the science because yeah. uh, at the core, the information's not that great if it's not good information. So we work really hard to make sure we've got the best outlook every single day. Um, and then going forward from there, we've got other avenues such as social media to kind of, you know, explain on that information in a way that people could better understand. But our uh, our outlooks will continue to uh, be very science heavy. Yes. Does it create challenges with um, so many people using your products with making sure that the, the message that you intended to get out gets out, whether it's on maps with maybe different colors or different wording, um, things like that? 
Yeah. And, you know, we have heard, you know, people have opinions on whether the words that we use are appropriate. And obviously there's a history of, of how we got there, but, you know, we've kind of just been trying to morph with that, use more of numbers. You'll see that more even in our outlook sometimes, but definitely on our social media, you know, today is a slight risk, two out of five or an enhanced risk three out of five to really kind of indicate where we are in that scale because numbers are a little easier uh, to interpret. You know, of course, unless it's DEFCON, which is the opposite order. But, you know, for the most part, people associate the increasing uh, magnitude with an increasing threat. Yeah. What about sort of the magnitude of what you guys are doing? I mean, it truly is protecting life and property. And um, especially on some of these high-risk days, which, you know, don't happen that often, there's just a lot riding on the forecast and the communication. And does that how does that pressure affect you? Yeah, so it, it is a lot of pressure. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're working somewhere around 270 to 280 days with severe weather uh, somewhere in the country. And so it's something we've become accustomed to. Uh, every single day, we're looking at the interesting weather wherever it is in the country. And so we really, you know, the really big days when we know that, hey, there's you know potential for very strong, intense, maybe even violent tornadoes, tornado outbreak type days, there definitely is a little bit a little bit more pressure, but really we're kind of staff forward every single day. Uh, so on those days, it kind of just brings some of the importance to what we do. But it really, from a workload perspective, is pretty similar to any other day. We just know the stakes are higher. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, and I I find it interesting what you said about, um, you know, 280 days a year, you're looking at the most interesting, you know, weather across the country. Um, and that's kind of how I feel, too, at, at the Weather Channel. You know, we cover the weather nationwide and globally if needed. And um and there's something happening every single day, which keeps life and work exciting for sure. Uh, but let's talk about the weather industry, because definitely communication is something we're all trying to improve upon. What do you think, you know, we need to, as as a sort of an enterprise as the whole, what part of it do you think that we need to improve on the most as meteorologists and as communicators? Yeah, really. So I, I think there's two things. One, we need to always make sure that the core of our forecast is sound and it's the most accurate forecast we can do. And there's so many great people um, working across the entire weather enterprise and the research realm and academia within NOAA, working on research to make sure that our science is as sound as it could possibly be. And then it's also that information is not very good unless you can actually get it to the people who need that information. And so it's really bridging that gap and all the great work that's been done with social science to kind of try to bridge that science and kind of bring it into the communication realm, I think is is getting us closer there. But I think that's something that we always need to be thinking about is making sure that everyone's getting the message uh, because because we see the impact of you know how people are going to respond to something, whether or not they were prepared for it or they weren't. Yeah, no, that comes into delivery, um, language. I've seen the National Weather Service do more Spanish language products in areas where, you know, that's where their audience, um, that's their main language. Um, the Weather Channel is doing the same. Um, and so, yeah, certainly um, making sure that people can get the messages is, is job number one. Uh, I do want to talk to you about your social media and getting the message out there, but let's take a quick break and we come back because that's something that you're famous for, some of these great stats that you share on social media. So we'll take a quick uh, listen to our sponsors and then we'll be back with more from Evan Bentley. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Okay, and we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno hosting today, and I've got Evan Bentley from the Storm Prediction Center, and we're talking about life at the SPC, uh, certainly everything that goes on there. Um, and Evan specifically is known for these great severe weather stats that he shares on social media. So that's what I want, I want to talk about, Evan. Um, what inspired you or sort of motivated you to to start collecting some of these stats and then sharing them with the public? Yeah, well, as you alluded to at the beginning, yeah, I've got a um, degree in meteorology with a minor in mathematics, and that's no, uh, you know, that all kind of goes hand in hand. I love numbers. Uh, there's a lot of people in meteorology who are that way. And so I kind of like seeing the numbers and where we stack up. And I think it does a great job of telling the story. Um, I'm always, you know, curious, well, Okay, we're, you know, and it's kind of part of what we talked about earlier, communication. Well, how do you communicate this event? Is this an event that happens a lot or has this not happened in 10 years? You know, are, are people familiar with what, what this is? It kind of helps contextualize it for me. So in my brain, I always find it interesting. And I'm like, oh, well, if I find it interesting, other people might. And uh, it turns out, you know, people do. And, you know, it really kind of helps, I think, uh, contextualize any of these weather uh, weather events. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, and I think the perspective is everything. Uh, because if you have a high risk day, but nobody sort of knows that that's a rare kind of day. It doesn't mean as much. Right. And so that the perspective is everything. Um, and not just when it comes to severe forecasting, but also fire weather too, because that's, I think that's an aspect of, of weather prediction that unless you lived in the West, <clears throat> most people don't really know a lot about it, but now, you know, when we have events like wildfire smoke from Canada getting moved into the U.S. and everyone in the northeastern U.S. is affected by the air quality. I think people start to pay more attention to all aspects of, of that kind of weather. Uh, you guys have a lot of uh, smart people at the Storm Prediction Center. Your forecasts are good. Um, can you tell me more about like how you get to that point in in your career where you get to the Storm Prediction Center? Are there tests that you have to take to get in there? What's the sort of what's the, the way to get in? Yeah, so I mean, so this is a, a relevant question, because um, we will have a lot of positions opening up um, here within the next, you know, five, five to 10 years. Um, and so kind of the, the way I got in was just gaining some forecast experience. You know, there's always the um, value of networking. And I would encourage anyone who, you know, is beginning their career, especially in the weather service and the operational um, meteorology environment to really kind of make sure that um, you know we know who you are. Don't be, don't be afraid to reach out and say, hey, you know, I, I would love to work on a project about some severe weather event with you guys. You know, and because there's so many opportunities like that, and if we know who you are, know you're interested, it it really kind of helps. You know, for for us to help you with your resume when that time comes, if you really want, want a job at the SPC. And that's kind of, that's kind of what it was for me. You know, I, I'd mentioned how my MIC in Portland kind of knew people out here and that really helped because it really helped me to kind of know what was important here, what skill sets I needed to improve on, to be ready to work at the SPC. And, um, really it's just a, and, and you know, I, one other thing I want to mention is we've got a wide variety of interests here. You know, we've got people who are interested in severe wind. We've got people interested in tornadoes. We have people interested in fire. Um, so really we've got a broad range of interests, which makes it, um, really a special place to work. And you can see, you know, with all the publications that we have, it's not just all tornadoes all the time. You know, we've got a wide range of topics that, that people are interested in. Right. And I actually, I think that's a good add too that it's not just um, forecasting day to day. There's, there's research and there's um, product development and um, communication development that happens beyond just, you know, creating the daily forecast. Right. 
Oh yeah, exactly. And that's, that's something I really love about the job here because, you know, as I mentioned, an average year, maybe we have around 280 days with some type of severe weather risk somewhere in the country. Well, the other 80 to 90 days of the year, um, our day-to-day job is pretty minimal. You know, we don't have to pay as close of attention to the weather. So in those days, we can spend a solid six, seven, eight hours working on research projects. And I really like that about this job. Either If the weather's interesting, you're looking at it. If the weather's not interesting, you're working on what you want to be working on, right? It's, you know, and so uh, like right now, I'm putting together a year in review webpage um, that, we'll, uh, that we'll have out here. And, you know, th- that's right up what we were talking about earlier. It's got stats all over the place. You know, we'll have all types of ways to contextualize how 2023 uh, look from a severe weather perspective. Um, and then also, you know, more on the data side, we're looking to build out new ways to query watches and outlooks. So instead of, you know, waiting for a tweet <laughs> that I send out about contextualizing the watches or outlooks, you could look it up for yourself. When's the last time there's a PDS watch for you know, such and such county in Ohio, you know, that that'd be the type of thing that we hope to build products for here in the future. That's huge. That's huge. Because, um, yes, a combination of we wait for your tweets or we we try to go back and it's hard to, uh, you know, there's some ways to research past warnings and watches, but it's hard. So we would all appreciate that very much. So you're living the dream job, Evan. I really think, you know, you're forecasting interesting and exciting events here um, or, um, or working on other weather-related projects that you want to. So that's really fantastic. And you alluded to that year in review. That's a relatively newer, um, I'll call it a product for lack of a better word, but newer release that you guys have had where you put together a look back at the past year, looking at the big severe events, the big fire events, and it's phenomenal. And I have to say, it makes me realize how much of our country is affected by weather. And really on most days. I mean, you said, what, like 280 days? Um, that's That really only leaves a small percentage of days that don't have really active weather. Um, what, what have you sort of noticed in going, in going through and creating these year in reviews here? What has been a big takeaway? Yeah, so something interesting, you know, I actually have the have the numbers here. So like in an average year, we have 268 days with a marginal risk or higher. And this would be in, in the last uh, nine years since we started adding the marginal and enhanced category. In um, this past year, 2023 was 271. So it's like, it's interesting that no matter what the weather pattern looks like, in the end, we always end up somewhere pretty close uh, to the mean, regardless of kind of how it evolves throughout the year. You know, for example, this year, we started really active in the spring. Uh, this past year, January through March was very active. It was the second most tornadoes on record uh, for that period. Um, And then May ended up being very quiet. But then the summer ended up being incredibly busy. We've got the most significant hail reports on record for the entire year, but most of that was congregated in the summer. We have the most wind reports uh, for any summer on record. And then we went to September through December, and we were really quiet. Uh, there was, it was one of the quietest periods on record. It was, I think, the quietest period since 1999 for tornadoes. And so it's interesting how even within the same year, we had these very active and very quiet periods. And in the end, we end up near the mean with a number of outlook uh, uh, categories. And I, th- I think that kind of just shows the variability you have throughout the year that even in active years, it all comes usually in spurts uh, rather than being pretty active throughout the entire year. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, gosh, that hail last summer, I remember that now. And just again, this year review is fantastic because it'd be a great snapshot to be able to look back and you know recall those kind of things. Because it's hard to imagine having another July like that with all that hail. But maybe we will, and we'll be able to go back to your product and and do the comparison. Uh, I want to mention uh, you mentioned January uh, busy last year, and I want to talk about winter severe because we did have that one big event this past December, and going back 
previous Decembers, it feels like winter severe has been ramping up. Do you, is that just our perception? Are we just reporting on it more? Um, do you think that there's been a change that allows for more severe weather in the winter months? Yes, that's uh, something we've been noticing as well. So this uh, March had the second most tornadoes on record. The most tornadoes on record was in 2022. <laughs> so that's two years in a row uh, near the high there. Um, now, some of that is we're uh, detecting more tornadoes. There's very few tornadoes that go undetected these days. And so, you know, the numbers are up. But even when you, you know, cut off EF0 tornadoes and only go with EF1 and above, it was still very active here, especially in the last, like March in the past five to six years. We've now had five consecutive marches with a violent tornado. Um, which is pretty phenomenal considering that we haven't had a violent tornado in May now for five years, which May is typically considered when you're in uh, the hardest severe weather season. So obviously it's been very active earlier in the season than, you know, later in the spring. Now, why is that happening? Is that just part of decadal variability? Um, Is there some type of uh, climate reflection in that? Um, It's interesting because May had basically no flow across the plains, which is why we had a relatively weak tornado season. But then we had really strong flow across the plains for the entire month of June, July, and August, which is why we had all the all the severe weather in the summer and all the hail, hail, et cetera. So it's not like we just shut off all the flow when it came to May. It's just wasn't there at the right time to get plains tornadoes. So is that related to a longer term trend that is somehow, you know, climate change involved, maybe? Or is it this a decadal trend and five years from now we'll be talking about how the plains are back? Uh, we don't really know. There's a lot of people yeah. that are looking at that research. I know one of your past guests, you know, Victor Gensini and Harold Brooks have been kind of looking at those type of things and kind of seeing, are there any connections there? And I think it's just too small of a sample size at this point. And uh, I think, but I think we'll get there and we'll, we'll see whether or not things are going to turn around or if this is part of a broader trend. Yeah, no. And I, you're right. You, this is one of those kind of situations where you just need so many years of data to see what has happened, that it's going to be farther in the future before you can look back and really say, what was the specific reason for that sort of change in pattern. I was going to bring up um, the research, actually, though, that Brooks and Gensini have done, because you you said you your mom always thought you'd move to Tornado Alley. But as it turns out, Tornado Alley isn't necessarily just in the plains anymore. And there's kind of been this evolution of tornadoes extending into the south and east and the Mississippi Valley and then really up into the Midwest as well. I mean, I can definitely think of a number of outbreaks all the way up through Illinois, Indiana that um, have left their mark. So, you know, talk about that sort of that there is no one specific tornado alley anymore. Right. And it's important for everyone to kind of be aware. And I and I think it's probably true that we don't want to just think tornado alleys just in the plains because perhaps people could be complacent thinking, you know, I'm not in an area that gets tornadoes, but Probably by now, uh, the unfor- unfortunately, the people there in the southeast into the, you know, kind of in Mississippi Valley have kind of realized that uh, whether or not they call themselves Tornado Alley, it's something that's a big part of their lives that they that they have to be ready for. And in fact, I think we kind of saw that in 2023. Um, we had, I believe it was 83 fatalities and 49 of them were in mobile homes. And we know the multitude of research that shows that part of the country is especially vulnerable uh, with the mobile home community. And so I think that's unfortunately what we're seeing Um when we do get tornadoes in that part of the country, there's just a lot more exposure uh, to the threat. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, All right, so we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of the Storm Prediction Center. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about the sports and weather as well. So quick break, and then we'll be back with Evan Bentley. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. 
With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We are back on Weather Geeks. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno hosting today, and we have Evan Bentley from the Storm Prediction Center catching up on uh, what forecasting is like and what life is like at the Storm Prediction Center and talking about some of the really exciting new products that they have available. Um, I wanted to talk about the future of the of SPC, but Evan, first I wanted to just take a step back and talk about um, what other new products might be coming out. It, very excited to hear that you guys are going to put together a catalog of, a searchable catalog of past watches, et cetera. Love all of the the briefing tools and stuff that, that you all have available. What else is coming? Yeah, so uh, we're always looking for, for ways to evolve. Um, some of the things that we're looking at is adding you know, additional outlooks in the fire weather. Right now we do a day one and day two fire. Is it time to start doing a day three fire? We know a lot of people um, kind of are looking to do in the planning stages, you know, kind of looking out to that time frame. So in the longer horizon, we might like to, you know, add different products there. But one of the big focuses on the sphere side is looking more for timing. We know people really care what time um, pro- um, they're going to be impacted by severe weather. And so we've been doing a lot of work over the last five to six years on developing timing guidance that we've been, uh, experimenting with internally uh, for a while, and we're really getting pretty confident with uh, with the output uh, with the, I guess, output that we're getting from it. And we've been sharing that with the local forecast offices, and they've been utilizing that for part of briefing packages, et cetera. And as it gets more and more, um, I guess, robust, uh, it'll be more readily shared, I think, um, on social media and, and to the public, because I think that's an important part: is the threat today from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m., or is it from 7 p.m. to midnight, because you know, really what, what we don't want from a communication perspective is for, let's say, things like schools, et cetera, to close when the threat is well into the evening and people think, oh, well, the sky's been clear all day. Why why'd they close schools and to get complacent, right? We want people to know, no, this is when the threat is. This is your four to six hour window when everyone need, really needs to be prepared and, and ready. Um, and I think that's an important part of what we can do uh, to help you know make that message a little more meaningful for everyone involved. That's huge. So will that be less of like... Uh, her or just um, convective model, or would it would it be more like in graphical form? I mean, so how would that look? So the graphical part of it is something that we've been um, struggling with. You know, how do you put that on a map? Um, you know, isochrones that show exactly what time um, the threat is supposed to reach a specific area. But even that is really hard in a graphical depiction. Um, one thing we've been using is for specific point locations, uh, just a simple line chart. So here's your tornado threat. Here's when it peaks. Here's you know, here's the hours that it peaks, and then when it falls off again at the end. That's the most simple way that we've shown for point locations, but showing it for an area for a wide area on a map is challenging, um, especially when you're trying to do it in a reproducible way rather than having to draw the lines on it manually every single time. If we can have a way for the computers to do it for us, but then again, that's really challenging to do in a way where you don't have lines crossing over each other, et cetera. And so that's why this has been a several year project where we're trying to trying to come up with the best ways to display that data in a way that's digestible by uh, our users. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. It actually brings up another question, though. So how much of what you do is a kind of by hand to start? I mean, it seems like severe weather forecasting is still one of those pieces of the forecast business where you really can't automate it. Like you're, you're, you 
your best forecast is going to come if you do a hand analysis of the isodrosotherms or the dew point analysis um, to, you know, to really get at where are those minutia, those, those little areas that will spark. Because it's always about the details. I mean, when it comes to some of the worst case scenarios, the devil's always in the details. So is there a lot of kind of hand forecasting still done there at the Storm Prediction Center? So primarily, it is still, as you alluded to, in the surface hand analysis. So we do that, especially in the bigger days. For me, I like it a lot on the days when moisture is the question to kind of track the moisture return. Are we going to get the 65 degree dew points, you know, up to the dry line in time before Z or Z or whatever? It's really kind of tracking that and seeing how it evolves, um, but also picking out little mesoscale corridors. You can see on some of these days when maybe you've got relatively veered flow across the warm sector and you've got some type of feature moving up through there that backs the winds just a little bit and you can watch it. Maybe you get some moisture pulling along there and you're like, huh, all right, that's the area to watch. And you know, it's the type of thing that we we'll all bring our maps together in the room. We'll look at, we're like, well, how do you analyze this? Is this a warm front or what do you, well, it's some type of boundary, differential heating boundary. Maybe, well, no, but there weren't really any clouds there. You know, we'll have those conversations in ops. And that's what a lot of those days when we don't have any active weather going on in the morning, we can really dig into the details really deep with those type of things. Now, once we get into June and July, it becomes a lot harder to, uh, you know, have everyone on deck doing that because you've got, the lead might be issuing watches while they're trying to do the outlook. And the other meso forecaster might be writing an MD for the mid-Atlantic. And you're just on your own looking at Texas, right? And so, you know, you've got to really make sure that that you're that you've got your process down, right? So you know you aren't going to miss anything. And that really for me starts with surface analysis. You know, on those days, let me figure out where everything is. Where's the surface low at? Where's the dry line? Are there any warm fronts or um other boundaries I need to be concerned with. Because then even if I can't do one every single hour throughout the day, at least I've got a starting point to know when I'm looking on the computer map, okay, what are these boundaries? I already analyzed them in the morning. Now I can just see how they evolve. Yeah. Let's talk about field experiments then kind of related to that. So whether it's field experiments or research or the Dow, the Doppler on wheels, um, how important is it to get that in-situ experience to take it back to forecasting? I feel like when I go in the field to report on weather, I become a better communicator and forecaster, to be quite honest, when I come back in studio, because when you experience it, it there's something else just kind of hits home. Does the whole does the same hold for severe weather forecasting? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we all love observing storms here, you know, it here at the Weather Center, it's when you're in the middle of central Oklahoma, there's plenty of days that you get to see uh, interesting weather, even from the building. You know, there's days when there's supercells forming southwest to here, and we've got stairs in the back stairwell, and we'll just all go up a couple flights of stairs to get above the trees and kind of see what's coming in. Because in really those days, I feel so much more in tuned with what's going on in central Oklahoma because you can see the storms evolve. You can kind of see how robust do these updrafts look. You know, are they really look like ones that are just going to take off, or are they kind of still mushy, look like they're going to take a little bit to really get going. That's what you can really see out there in the field. Um, and that's the great thing today with having so many resources out there. You can watch different storm chaser feeds or other live video where you can actually get a pretty good idea of what it's looking like out there in the field. Um, and, you know, with a lot of us having field experience ourselves, we recognize, all right, you know, well, that storm's looking really good or that mesocyclone really looks like it's, you know, developing well. Even though we aren't worried about that 30 to 60 minute time frame, you know, that's more in the, in the warning time frame. The evolution of the storms really helps to give us an idea of what this day is going to look like. Is this going to be one of those days where we get tornadoes early and often, or is it going to be kind of a slow uh, process? Because really that's important for getting watches out. Sometimes even in the early stages of cumulus development, you can be like, "Uh Oh, all right, this is a day 
let's let's not waste any time. Let's get the watch out early versus the days where you're like, man, this could take a while before it really turns a corner. Yeah, no, I mean, it often and my weather producers know this about me is as soon as we get a good visible satellite picture, I want to look at it and I want to show it on air because that gives you a sense of how much vertical development is happening in the clouds on days when there's potential severe weather. Is it is it starting early or is it going to wait till the afternoon? I mean, that's I feel like it's everything to get that visual. And cameras really do help a lot, whether it's a storm chaser camera or whether it's all the tower cams that exist out there across the country. I think they're invaluable to the forecast process. Um, what, what about the future of SPC? What do you think? Do you, how do you think things might change You know, going forward five years, 10 years from now? Yeah, so um, kind of as we talked to earlier, we're looking into ways that we can kind of help quantify our forecast information and make it more digestible for the public. Um, we've been working for a while, um, something that's been presented at a conference, the impacts experiment, where really you know, we can take a given forecast and we can run it through Monte Carlo simulations and figure out how many people might be impacted, how many hospitals might be impacted, et cetera, based on um, a historical Historically, how you know moderate risk per se has has verified, and so and that you know has all the metadata from parts of the country, et cetera. And that I think is really the future of kind of where we're going because you know, we can, as forecasters, we can keep focusing on making the best possible forecast that we can. But then we can kind of use post-processed um, information to really help on the communication side. You know, help with especially with our core partners uh, like FEMA, um, so that they can really help you know with resource allocation, resource management, even down to the emergency management level, you know, if, if they kind of know, you know, how to quantify this day compared to past days that they've seen, you know, that that'll really be helpful for uh, preparing for any type of weather event that we have. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know about SPC is that you guys are making forecasts every day, but you're working with a with a team of communicators and social scientists to try to evolve the message to make sure it's most effective, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's been, I, I think, a key as with what we're doing is having the social scientist uh, perspective in there. Um, because in the end, we're hardcore, geeky scientists, right? And so that's that's what, what we're here to do. And we're like, you know, let me just focus on making the best severe weather forecast I can um, and let people who are true experts um, in kind of the social science and the communication side be the ones who can evolve the message and allow us to continue to focus on the severe weather science. Is there one event that has stood out to you the most since you've been forecasting at SPC? Yeah, um, definitely the one since I've been here was last year uh, in Rolling Fork uh, because that was, oh, at the time I was working the Outlook desk. Um, and so I was doing the Outlooks leading up to that event. And so, you know, I did the Outlook the night before and it was just, it was that sinking feeling when I was doing the Outlook the night before um, the I just remember writing up the forecast discussion and just thinking like, there's like, how can I write this in a way to make sure that everyone knows like, this is a day to be extremely like prepared uh, and ready for. And, you know, because like of what we're trying to do, you know, is the, you know, the, the question of course goes through your mind, Hey, do you want to have a high risk out there? And, you know, we try to reserve that tone, maybe only happen a couple of times a year when the threat is the very highest, because in the end we want to have that in our arsenal when we want, every alarm bell to sound, you know, that's possible out there. But then you've got these days like that where there maybe isn't going to be a large-scale tornado outbreak, but there's a small corridor there where you could get one or two storms that just really could be big-time problem. And that's what it was looking like. You know, the night before, we were looking at some of the, you know, convective-allowing model guidance, and we were like, okay, maybe we won't get a really good storm in that corridor. That'd be great if we can keep that out of there. But then you just step back and looked at the pattern, and it was like – 
this really is does not look great and so that one really struck me because you know i went home after doing that forecast and just you know kind of laid there in bed for an hour like i, I go to bed right away i I'm, i never have an issue falling asleep but that night i kind of did it was i was just kind of laying there in bed like wow so those four people in uh, Mississippi, I hope I did everything that I could to, to help make sure that everyone was prepared. And then, you know, the, the next day, you know, you can, or, that's the thing, like is you can't really check out, you know, I don't think I was, even, I pretty sure I wasn't even working the next day. And so, you know, I was just hanging out at home, kind of checking on the radar. And then I saw that supercell form there, Southwest of the Rolling Fork. And it was like, from that point on, it was like, you know, I checking the radar every five minutes, just like, Oh no, no, please, please miss town. You know, it's just, that event, because I worked the outlook part of it, just hit me so much harder because um, it was kind of my first outlook for for a high end event. And really, when you've got that more personal connection, it makes you wonder, right? Like, what could I have done more? You know, is there anything that I that I could have done more? And in the end, you got to realize just every single time you just got to do your best. And and that's what we all do here. You know, we've we have so many events that we have like that. You know, we really you know, try not to, you know, of course we've got the emotional connection to it as, as all humans do, but really we've got to be ready for the next one. Cause the very next day, there's going to be another event. You just have to make sure every single time you're putting together the best forecast that you can and hoping that the weather enterprise, um, disperses the information and people get the message and take action as best as they can and know the unfortunate reality that there it's not always going to be enough. Yeah. Evan. Yeah. I mean, well said all of that. It is, you, you can't ever really turn it off when it comes to meteorology um, because you're exactly right. Once you make the forecast, then you need to see how it plays out. And then when it plays out the way it was forecast, which could be devastating, uh, then then that kind of really, you know, hits you hard. It's it's a really, I think, difficult part of the career that maybe nobody realizes when they first choose it. But that, you know, you, you feel connected to the people who were affected by these weather events, even if you never meet them but you feel connected. Yeah. And we have to kind of compartmentalize it because mm -hmm. there's the next day you've got, you've got severe weather to deal with again. And so right. you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in the morning. We'll be like, Hey, you know, how did that verify? What could we have done different? We'll have those conversations every single morning. So, you know, we're, we are our own biggest critic. We always want to make sure that we're doing the best, but in the end that, 1630 day one convective outlook has to go out and we're basically on to the next day, sometimes even before that, when you've got uh, severe weather continuing through the morning sometimes. Right. And so it's just, you know, it's just it, the very, very next play uh, comes up really quick. Yeah, no, it's hard. You definitely have to uh, to make sure you take some time to separate out work and, you know, the rest of your life. And speaking of here, um, we need to wrap it up soon. I wanted to ask you about some of your interests. I understand that you're a big college uh, football fan, a college basketball fan. So um, especially from football, how often are you looking at the weather for some of these games? And gosh, we've had such big pro high profile ones recently with the cold in Kansas City and the snow in Buffalo. And, um, you know, as a sports fan, are you watching it from the sports perspective or are you watching it from the weather perspective? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you that game and that was supposed to happen in Buffalo a couple weeks ago. It was, you know, going into it, it was like you understand why they should move that game because of all the people trying to get to the stadium, the impacts it's going to have on the emergency management community. But then, you know, kind of the weather geek side is like, man, how fun would it be to watch them try to play football in two feet of snow? You know, it's like when you're playing with your buddies uh, outside uh, during the winter playing snow football, to see professional athletes do it. Uh, there's there's some part that, you know, that it'd, it'd be fun to watch. But, you know, you, you ask, am I looking at the weather? I find every single time I'm, you know, in a football stadium, I'm always looking at the flags 
and then looking that are up on the side of the stadium and then looking at the flags on the goalposts and saying, huh, so I wonder why is there no flat and why is there no wind getting down? What's blocking the wind? Is there anything blocking the wind? Is there any, is there, or, you know, the one, the one time it was actually warmer in the upper deck because there was an inversion that it set in a pretty shallow inversion. So it was warmer in the upper deck than the lower deck. And I noticed it when I, when I walked up there, you know, it's those things we can never shut it off as meteorologists, right? <laughs> we can never shut it off. That was fantastic. Actually. Uh, yes, we can never shut it off. We, we had just been talking about trying to find some time where you cannot think about the weather and you're going to a football game and you're still thinking about the weather, of course. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. True and true. You are a weather geek. Evan Bentley, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, what is the best way for people to follow you or even reach you if they have another question? Uh, yeah, so feel free to uh, reach out on um, social media. Um, I, my Twitter profile, I'm fairly active usually with Spear Weather Stats, uh, Evan underscore Bentley. But then also feel free to send me an email, evan.bentley at noah.gov. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions anyone has. Um, any um, people who want to work for the SPC, please reach out. Um, we're always looking to uh, add more talent to our team. And like I said, there'll be a lot of opportunities here over the next five to 10 years. So we're actively recruiting uh, the next generation of SPC forecasters. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as we just heard, it sounds like living the dream. If you are a, a meteorologist here and a weather geek here, there, there's plenty of uh, geekiness to be had there at the Storm Prediction Center. Evan, appreciate your time today. Um, again, really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks to everyone listening and watching for this edition of Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time. Bye.